0: Pregnant women do just as well um, with COVID as with any other, you know, significant respiratory illness and very similar to respiratory illness like influenza or, you know, uh, pertussis. I mean, other things we have to deal with.
1: She's a busy physician with a busy family life. She obtained her medical degree from the University of Chicago Pritzker School of Medicine. She's a certified da Vinci robotic surgeon. She's a Southern California native born and raised in the city of Whittier. On the healthcare experience with Tom Glander, let's welcome Dr. Carrie Price. You're a people first physician, which is very well, it seems like it's different from some, but your focus is on women's health and you do a lot of robotic surgery. Yes,
0: that's right. I do, um, I love that part of my practice and that's. Sort of what got me to be into gyn was that there were so many facets of it that you can do, and sort of pick and choose what you like to do and what interests you and excites you. And so, of course, the obstetrics part is so fantastic and and really drives a lot of passion for a lot of us. But gynecology and gynecologic surgery is just have taken off, and with robotics, it's just become a whole new new ball game. And so, for me, the challenge and the um, you know progressiveness and the technology. So all of it is really attractive. But yeah, I mean, the the robotic surgery is super awesome and and really fun to do.
1: So if an insurance company says, I don't think we're going to approve robotic surgery, what is your personal feeling about that?
0: Yeah, I mean, honestly, you know, robotics is a tool, right? So you can do surgery. I mean, I still love good old fashioned open that you see on television, you know, and you see on TV and you see in movies. I mean, that's why all of us could do surgery, that's, that's where you start, that's where you learn. And it, you can take away any equipment from any of us, and you still got to be able to do good old fashioned open surgery. So I'd be sad because I play video games. I so like them. And that's essentially what a robot is to many of us. But, um, you know, if you take away my tools, that's fine. I'm still going to do what, what I love. And surgery is something I love. So I hope, you know, they allow us to keep doing things that make things better and safer and, and, you know, minimally invasive for patients, but, you know, at the end of the day, we we go with, with what we have and, and what we can use, and, and I just do what I need to do. Whatever is best for the patient, whatever I need to use, that's what I do.
1: So do more patients actually request uh, things to be done robotically, if possible? Yeah.
0: Yeah, a lot of patients do, and the reason being is, you know, patients these days, you know, are really smart. They've got access to a lot of information. They do a lot of homework. Um, they're trying to understand their procedures and the risks and benefits of those procedures, even before they walk into my office. Um, and a lot of those patients have found that the benefits of robotics that a lot of us look to, um, particularly, you know, less bleeding or blood loss, um, smaller incision, uh, typically, you know, faster recovery, um, and less need for stay in hospital. You know, all these things that are great for people to recover from surgery um, has been something that robotics has really allowed us to do more of. And so I, I do think a lot of people have started really thinking about a minimally invasive approach to their surgery and robotics in particular.
1: So how does that compare to, okay, you've got three different types here. You've got an open where you make an incision across The abdomen down a little close to the pelvis. You've got a second style, which is laparoscopic. There's no robots involved. And then, of course, the third is robotic surgery. Can you compare and contrast the difference between the traditional laparoscopic surgery versus the robotic surgery? And why would I, I choose robotics over the traditional laparoscopic
0: Right. So, yeah, the, the traditional laparoscopic um, approach has, is still good and still very good in a lot of places that don't have access to robotics or if for some reason, you know, we can't, we can't do something or it's going to a long time to wait, especially when robotics were new. Traditional laparoscopy was still a great tool and it still is a great tool for a lot of things. But, um, you know, for certain cases, especially more difficult cases, bigger cases, you know, hysterectomy, um, fibroid surgery, some of the things that I do, um, you know, at least in my field, robotics just enables you to have so much clearer visualization, um, better understanding and manipulation of the tissue. You can rotate your instruments in a way that naturally moves like your hands, um, which allows us as a surgeon to make more precise and finer and more purposeful movements with our hands. And that, really, when it comes down to for surgery, it's a technique, but it's also a finesse. And so, when you have straight stick laparoscopy great, you're still getting a lot of benefits of minimally invasive surgery, but essentially you're poking sticks down there that don't really rotate at the end like you like your hand was, so your, your range of motion's really limited, and so that's, that's the big difference. between. I've those
1: heard people say that it's like having, uh, you've got wrists on the end of your arms, and your wrists move yeah. around, and you've got fingers attached, so these instruments are almost like having your hands inside of somebody, inside of a three-dimensional cave, it's like you're in there right. actually working on stuff.
0: Yeah. yeah. That's exactly right. And that's why robotics, for many of us that do it, you know, it's, it's a skill to learn, but it becomes, you know, once you start learning and doing it, it, it feels so natural to do that because it feels like you're there. It feels like you're there and moving your hands. And that, that's a big step over straight to laparoscopy, where literally, you know, like you've You have to pretend your hands and your fingers all stuck together and you can only move them and rotate them in a couple different ways.
1: Okay, so think back to when you were going through your robotics training and it came time to do your very first robotics patient. What was that like?
0: Well, it's always a little scary. Um, I I think anytime you do something for the first time, you know, even though as a surgeon, by nature, we're very confident people, Um, we are sure of ourselves, we train, we prepare. I, I think I'd gone through a hundred billion videos and simulations and all these things I'd done. I'd done a live uh, pig lab up in Northern California. I'd flown up to intuitive to do that. So I'd done a lot of things, so I felt very comfortable with the process, the equipment, you know, how it goes. But live surgery is still live surgery. I mean, that's just something where every time I do surgery, even now, years and years later, every time I do surgery, I'm always a little bit nervous anytime I do something for the first time because, you know, I'm constantly wanting the very, very best outcome for my patient, and obviously being as safe as possible and wanting a good result and wanting a result that I feel is worth, you know, what I would expect from myself. And so, yeah, I mean, I was a little nervous. I, I won't lie. But once you get going and once you start feeling the flow and you're starting to do the case, you know, that, that nervous energy, just like when you're an athlete, which, you know, I think that's, that's where it comes from for me. You start your game and those butterflies are gone and now it's about winning.
1: And that's, right I think,
0: you know, that's how I approach surgery. You know, once that, once those, that, that surgery starts and those, those little jitters leave, it, it's time to crush it. So that's essentially how I, how I treat surgery. Okay. Like,
1: that's really uh, interesting because uh, you were an all American water polo player.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's, I think where that comes from, you know, and you're in, in lots of situations, big games, um, you know, big, you know, down to the wire, you're down or you got to make it. And for me, I was a goalie and sometimes it'd be like, okay, we're well, up by one. I can't let anything else in, you know, this is the game. I'm, I'm the game now. So, you know, things like that and, or penalty shots. And, you know, thinking back to when we won our, our conference championship when I was a senior at college, you know, those are big, big moments where you do your gut check, you know, and you're like, right. Hey, are you, are you here everything you've done? Your training, your hard work. You sacrifice everything, gets you to be at this one, one place in one time. So I treat every surgery, yeah, like it's a water polo game for me. <laughs>
1: that's cool. That's great. All right, I've got a, an eight-month uh, pregnant daughter. This is her first. Well, congratulations. Child. Yeah, that's amazing. Thank you. And I told her that I would be talking to you, and she had some <laughs> questions. So I'm yeah, going to drop her uh, question in here. Here we go. Here we go.
2: I read somewhere that the virus could actually start attacking the placenta. So does COVID-19 attack the placenta during pregnancy?
1: How do you yeah. respond to that, that question?
0: Yeah, I mean, you know, and, and this has been a very interesting few months um, as a, a doctor who takes care of pregnant patients. And when, you ha- when you're dealing with an illness like this and a virus like this, we don't know, have as much information as so many other things that we've had well, that are well studied. And, you know, what I would say is a lot of our information um, you know, comes from smaller studies right now. It comes from things that are a little bit biased and anecdotal in terms of the population and what we're looking at. And and pregnancy is no different And um, that we're trying to get as much information as we can about this virus and how it affects, you know, pre-pregnancy, pregnancy, postpartum, you know, all of it. And what I would say is honestly... From my own research, my you know all the different meetings I have to go to, um, our meetings that we have with the Department of Public Health and, and the CDC and all the things we have in different hospital boards, um, is that you know there's there's a lot of good information about pregnancy. And right now, the comfort that we're all taking is that actually it seems that pregnant women do just as well um, with COVID as with any other you know significant respiratory illness. And very similar to respiratory illness like influenza or, you know, uh, pertussis, I mean, other things we have to deal with, it appears that the fetus and the placenta are actually pretty resilient. um, And we don't see actually a lot of transfer across the placenta or, you know, this overwhelming inflammatory response, you know, that you would sort of think would be there. Um, And so while there's these small studies where we think maybe we've seen some cross antibody, maybe we've seen some cross inflammatory markers. Um, you know, right now there really isn't any overwhelming evidence to make us more concerned about about patients in pregnancy, other than of course for their general health. And any time mom gets sick when she's pregnant, it's not good. Um, so we're trying to, you know, do all the same things to keep our pregnant patients safe. But very, very fortunately we are seeing very good outcomes actually in the vast majority of patients who've been pregnant during this time and have delivered babies, Um, whether they've had the infection or not. You know, we've actually seen that this is rarely um, progressing to a more severe disease state in both the mother and the, and the uh, infant um, than it, it would be if it was a you know really bad influenza. And so um, I think while you'll see that there's studies out there, and again, patients are smart, they have access to information, they have access to articles and publications. Um, you know, just to know that to take everything you read, especially smaller studies, you know, um, with a grain of salt, because it really takes a larger population-based study um, to really feel like there's, you know, we, we know something's going on. So I would say at, at this point, no, you know, I don't I don't think there's any significant data out there to suggest that, that, that that's something that women should be, you know, any more concerned about than any other illness they'd have when they're pregnant.
1: That's, that's comforting news then. Yes. <laughs> I would, I took, I, if I was a woman, I would say, oh, I feel much better.
0: Yes, absolutely. That is, that is our goal is to provide that information to our patients. Cause you know, I mean, I read a hundred billion medical articles a day at this point, you know, with all this stuff and <laughs> I've been trained on, I've been trained how to read them, how to discern what's good, how to discern what's a reputable journal, how to, how to discern what's a reputable study and, and confidence interval and statistical things. And you know, the average, average person doesn't know that all they see is the headline or right. the abstract and, um, and that's scary. And so you know, I tell my patients, yeah, you know, you got questions, email me. They email me all the time, um, you know, or, or bring them into their visits because, you know, my, my goal is not just to take care of them, keep them healthy with their pregnancy from a physical standpoint, but mentally, I got to keep them, you know, optimistic, um, healthy, you know, mentally healthy because that affects so much of their physical health. Right. Um, so, yeah, that's, that's the thing I've been telling a lot of patients, not just the patients, but any patient right now. If you got concerns about something, you know, ask your doctor. Your doctor, you know, is trained to know how to how to read this information and how to make that, you know, more more readily available and right. user friendly.
1: Because that's your focus. That's your and that segues beautifully into the whole. How do I be healthier? She had a question uh, about exercise during this time. I'll play it for you.
2: Yeah, I walk a lot already, though, and then I get tired. Yeah. So, do I need to exercise more than that? Combat getting
0: tired or do I exercise less? Or I don't know. Yeah, exercise is a big one. Um, My patients ask me about that a lot because there's a lot of mixed information about there. I have patients who literally feel like they, you know, have to like lay down for nine months and they can't move at all, or like (laughs) culturally, or they're Mother-in-law or their mother, someone tells them like, "Oh my God! Like you don't go up the stairs, you know. It's, you're pregnant. It's like, oh my gosh, Like pregnant ladies can do all these amazing normal things when they're pregnant. So, you know, I have I have pregnant patients that are, you know, personal trainers and Zumba instructors and uh, Olympic athletes and, um, you know, and they do exactly what they do when they're pregnant, and their pregnancies are beautiful and healthy, and and so are their babies, and I think. The biggest thing I tell people is, you know, I want them to be as healthy as possible. I want them to be as active as possible during their pregnancy to, you know, help keep their blood pressure good and their weight good and and their circulation good and their sleep and their um, energy good. And we know from lots of data that exercise helps in all those things for all of us. And so I want them to exercise and be healthy, but clearly their body is going through a progressive and ever-changing physical you know transformation and so you have to modify your exercise as that goes along because yeah you're going to be tired when you're you know lugging around an eight pound baby in your pelvis and you weren't like a few months ago and um your your energy changes and and your regular schedule doesn't stop so I ask people just to physically keep themselves moving whether that's walking or swimming or running if they're a runner or their elliptical or yoga or Pilates or whatever it is. I ask my patients to stay active, but I also tell them to listen to their bodies. If, if she's tired, hey, that means your body needs a break. And so not to push themselves if they don't feel well, because that's not going to be good.
1: So there's um, some point at which they are just naturally going to slow down. The progression of this okay. thing growing overcomes their ability to deal with that energy level.
0: Absolutely, and that's you know I tell them, hey, you know you're gonna be tired and and um you know it's a lot of work for your body just to do your normal day-to- day activities while also growing, caring for you know feeding this baby and also just the physical weight, you know women a healthy singleton pregnancy, most women gain somewhere between twenty and thirty five pounds um that's that's not a small amount, and um you know there there's a lot of things about their bodies that Feel different, And so I tell them if your body's telling you to rest, rest. Now, if you're, you know, a bump on a log on the couch watching TV all day, then that's not, you know, we're not going to be good with that. Well, let's but, say
1: that you were a physically fit female who came into this and was in really good shape and yeah. you got pregnant and then you literally just crashed on the couch for the next nine months.
0: Oh my gosh. Yeah. I mean, and some people do, it, it takes a lot out of them. I think.
1: Would they it, be worse about, off because of that?
0: I mean, there is something to be said for for labor and delivery in terms of when you have a baby, I mean, that's like running a marathon. You're just in one place. So, you know, the more you can do to, to prepare your body for that very intense physical experience and for the recovery, you know, not just recovering from the delivery, but hey, now you have a newborn baby you got to take care of right. Um, 20, 24 hours a day. So my patients, I feel that go into their into their pregnancy active and healthy and continue that active, healthy lifestyle during their pregnancy, they, and we know this from a lot of studies, they have better labors, they have better recoveries, um, and typically have, you know, just an overall healthier pregnancy.
1: Right. So now this brings up one more, another question here. Um, she asked me about whether or not she should have an epidural. She's read oh. stuff to how it can be such a problem, and on the other hand, it's like it's the best thing I ever did.
0: Yeah, you know the epidural. Um, that we get that question a lot. The epidural can be a very beautiful thing, um, and that's just because it, especially with your first baby. I mean, that can be a very long labor, especially the early phase. Um, you know, some women luck out and they have a shorter labor and delivery, and and they want to do it naturally, and that works. But you know, you have a thirty-hour labor or thirty-six-hour labor. That's a really long time. To oh, be you just got
1: to be exhausted and, at the end of that. Oh yeah
0: exhausted and pain. And there's a lot of things. So I tell my patients, there is nothing bad about an epidural in the sense that it's perfectly safe. Um, It's extremely low risk of complications. I mean, less than, you know, most of the other things you do in your day to life, I mean, getting in a car, doing anything else. Um, You know, it does not slow down or change the progression of labor in any way. The labor will continue as it is continuing. Um, And obviously it allows some people the very nice opportunity to rest um after they've come in early labor for who knows how long and we get to rest during the late early and active phase and then they're rested and ready for pushing um so it certainly is never a bad thing it's it's perfectly fine to have an unmedicated delivery um you know but that's a lot of mental and physical preparation for the realistic amount of pain which i think even people who have a, think they have a high pain tolerance, if you've not been through labor and delivery without an epidural, it's, I'll tell you, it's the worst pain ever. Um, you can't imagine <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I had my first daughter um, unmedicated, not by my choice. It just went very fast, and they didn't have time to, to get start. me an epidural. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, I mean, I survived, <laughs> but <laughs> I, I wouldn't choose to have that experience again. But that's my choice. And I know I've had friends that have had other babies and medicated and they they that's their choice. And the next time I had a baby, my second baby, I got an epidural very early and took a nap and woke up and had a baby and it was great. So that's just, you know, I think I think there's each their own. But that's definitely something, you know, that I tell patients to explore and then we talk about it. And then even when we're in labor, I'm like, just come in and labor and let's just see how it goes. You know, be open. And let's let's decide at the time what you're feeling is the best place for your body, and then we go for it. All
1: right, that's great. Now I'm going to take this into another place. So this is about patient uh, doctor satisfaction. She had this question.
2: So I'm I'm considered extremely low risk. I'm 34, but I'm still super low risk because I'm very healthy, and I don't have a family history of any genetic problems at all. So. I know that I'm low risk, but my doctor acts like he just could not care any less than he does. And I don't know if it's because of what's going on in the world or if it's simply because I don't have any issues he has to be concerned about or but man, he just you know, are are you doing fine? Do you have any questions? Great. See you in 5 weeks. Bye. Oh,
0: okay yeah I mean, and, I, and I'm not
1: asking you to talk about that guy in particular, but I know that a lot of people have this concern when they're trying to find a doctor. They ask a lot of questions. You know, do you know anybody? Do you recommend anyone?
0: Yeah, I mean, you know, that's unfortunate. I mean, you you definitely never as a physician want anyone to feel that way. um that they're you know, that they don't matter. I mean, I think that's that's never the aim of anyone, I would think that that goes into this profession because really, you know, this is not a job, it's a, it's a profession, it's a choice you make very early on that, you know, you give up a good part of your life to do it, and, and still, while you're doing it, you make a lot of sacrifices, family, and your free time, and a lot of things, so, of course, you want to make sure it's something you love to do, and, you know, I think, I think on, on one hand, she's probably onto something in terms of, you know, this pandemic has been incredibly stressful, um, emotionally and physically exhausting, um, you know, for patients, for us as providers, um, because it, it, you know, not only are, are we dealing with very anxious, depressed, nervous, scared, you know, patients, I mean, literally every day, um, but we, you know, are also people who have spouses and family and parents and people who we are thinking every day we walk into our jobs are, am I going to bring something home and, and risk the health of myself or my family? Um, you know, am I, at, I, you know, what i what's going to happen if that happens and I can't take care of my patients and I can't take care of my family? Um, you know, physician practices across the country have, have let go of a lot of staff, a lot of doctors because they couldn't sustain um, when no one was able to be seen. Um, you know, surgeons couldn't operate, hospitals couldn't, you know, do anything elective. And, and so it was, it was rough. It's still rough. And it's, we're recovering much like a lot of other businesses in the country. I mean, we don't consider ourselves a business, but medicine at some point is a business. And, um, you know, so there's financial stresses on, on people and emotionally, you know, we all know colleagues that have been sick. Um, and thankfully many of them have done well, but some of them haven't done well. And, you know, that, that's emotionally draining on people. Um, and so I think, you know on the one hand during this time especially I I my patients have been very understanding and sometimes they haven't been. And I think it's important to realize your physician's also a person. Um, you know, they have bad days, they have bad weeks, sometimes years, months. Um maybe maybe, you know, they're burnt out. Maybe medicine for them now is not what it was when they started. Um maybe they're going through something personally and we're not really able to share those things with patients clearly. Um so there's there's always a degree of that where I ask patients, you know, and 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 you know now we get reviews like we're a pizza place, right? Online, I mean, you can go uh, online yeah, and I'm sure true. someone, I'm sure someone's gone on there and I know they've left bad reviews about me. As much as I love my job and take care of my patients, because maybe they had to wait a long time to see me because I was delivering a baby, or maybe um, I had to leave and do emergency surgery and and they were mad at me about that, or. Um, you know, maybe one of my office staff wasn't as polite. And so, you know, that's, it, and that goes against me, all of it does, it always comes back on you. So I think, I think part of that, you know, is, is a thing. But, you know, it's, I don't know, I, I would say that, that your doctor should always care about you. And if you're getting the sense that they don't, um, you know, I know, it's awkward to ask, <laughs> you can ask, but at the same time, sometimes that means, you know, that's maybe not the best doctor, or the best fit and, and looking around, you know, now when you're eight months pregnant, it's pretty hard to switch. Um, right. but you know, that's something where clearly if, if, after this, she's like, you know, maybe that's not the person for me. I think, you know, just with anything, you want to have a good rapport, a good relationship with your doctor. And if you feel like that's not happening, you shouldn't stay there. And, um,
1: but like you said, you that know, would have can... to be earlier on in this situation and not, uh, when yeah. you're eight months and she's, she could just, she could come anytime here. So.
0: Yeah. Exactly, and I think that the thing I tell those patients um you know is you know hang in there for the safety and well-being of yourself and your baby and and you know the fact that you're low risk and healthy is great, um but that's something where yeah at, at a at a point if you do get a survey or you get a thing you i I say share those things because those are important things for other people to know you know i I got good medical care, right I got good medical care, I was safe, I was well taken care of. But I didn't feel like this doctor really, um, you know, had had my best interest or or was listening to me or whatever, Um, because that's important. You know, when she refers or recommends when people ask her, that's that's important to know. I wouldn't hide that by any means. Um, And I'll say I'll tell you, I mean, every bad review I think I've ever had was about something like that, a wait time in office, Um, because I, I if I ever read a review that someone didn't care and felt I didn't care about them, I mean, I'd be picking up the phone. Being like that is not, you know. That right. Yeah, just never, some I've,
1: underlying something that's behind something that. Something going on. Yeah, right, there's
0: something right. going on. That's the average person, that's, you know, the average physician, that's, that's just never, should never come across that way.
1: Okay. All right. Yeah, thank you. And I'm sure that uh, that's going to go a long way for a lot of people to under, help help them understand that, yeah, you are a human being when it's all yeah. said and done and you've just totally focused your life on taking care of other people, it can be extremely yeah. draining. Let me ask you one last question and it's sure. about Disneyland because I know you're an oh. annual pass holder. Yes.
0: <laughs>
1: so when do you think they're going to open the gates?
0: Oh God, I don't know. It's, it's been so sad it's, and it's just, I, I think I don't in my entire life, I can't remember it ever being close ever. So I'm, you know, for me, it's like many people, you know, I take my kids there. I, you know, my husband and I went there on dates in high school. I mean, this is like a place for a lot of people. It's a special place. And, um, you know, I think it's just, gosh, it's going to be so difficult with all the regulations they're putting in terms of facing people and, um, you know, cleaning things and, and all these things. So honestly, I, I'm, I hate to say it but I would I almost wonder if they're even going to open anytime this year it may not even be this year it may be next year um I know some places are starting to open um like Disney World and Magic Mountain I think um I heard you just have to make reservations um you know Disneyland though is such a global I mean you, you know you've been there you see people from all over the world all over the world all the time it's just I don't know how that's going to work. I, I can't imagine making a reservation and taking like nine years to get in. Um, <laughs> so, you know, and, half, I mean, you know, think of half of those rides. I mean, you know, how do you physically distance yourself, you know, when, you know, sitting on Tower of Terror? Now I guess it's the, whatever, Marvel movie now, but it's like, there's, you know, 40 of you ready to drop, you know, definitely not six feet apart. <laughs> so like, how do you, you know, how do you do that? So I, it's got to be something like that. But I really hope at some point it happens and it's safe because, not only that, I mean, this is a time where people need some normal things to do and kids need normal things to do. And, and um, yeah, I mean, I honestly, though, from everything I've seen and read and what and what they're doing, even with the basic smaller stuff, it's like, gosh, I could see it not not being any time.
1: Hmm, interesting. Well, I hope it's sooner. We all, of course, we I all hope, hope, so. at hope. hope. Oh, my God. I,
0: <laughs> I need a churro and a dole whip like yesterday. So I don't I don't know what I'm going to do over the summer. I'm going to have to live live my life cheryl and joe list, I guess. <laughs> wow.
1: Well, Dr. Price, thank you. It's been a real pleasure talking to you.
0: No, of course. Thank you so much for letting me be a part of it. I really hope that this this is helpful, and I hope that, you know, it's just another way for people to get information that maybe's not so, you know, boring and uh, sterile and scary. <laughs> I feel like that's the only thing people get these days, so I'm hoping to maybe make it a little more, a little more personal.